Well, good morning, everyone. Welcome to Waikai Church, and thank you for joining us in worship, uh, especially if you're new or maybe you're newer here. Uh, we do want to welcome you, and if there are any questions you may have, any comments, concerns about what you see here, anything about the church, uh, please come and find me after service is over or any one of the other elders, and we'd be happy to talk to you. And for those of you who may be more on the shy side, you can always send any one of us an email as well, and uh, give us a few days, and we'll get back to you as soon as we can. But we want to help you understand the importance of Jesus Christ and his church. Now at this time, I invite you to take out your Bible or Bible underneath the chair in front of you and turn to the book of Luke. And we are in Luke chapter 9 and verse 49 as we continue our study through Luke. Luke chapter 9, verses 49 through 56 is our passage today. That passage can be found on page 868 if you are using a church Bible, page 868. Luke chapter 9 and verse 49. And before we look at this text together, would you please join me in prayer? Oh, Father, we're so thankful for the many ways uh, you've been so good to us. We're thankful for your word by which we may come to know you more and more. And so we ask uh, that by the supernatural work of the Holy Spirit, you would convict our hearts of your truth, that you would sanctify us by your word, and that you would bring uh, salvation to those who may not know you at all, even the ones who think that they do know you but may actually not. We pray that you would show forth your amazing grace. Would you give us this grace to see the glory of Jesus Christ? It's in his mighty name we pray. Amen. Amen. Luke has most recently given to us uh, a series of instances which really do not portray Jesus' disciples in the best of light. There's a strange a paradox within them, that his followers can somehow come to a noble conclusion and even make a remarkable confession with their lips, something that no one else is confessing, that Jesus is the Christ of God. They are really the first ones to do this so explicitly in verse 20 of the same chapter, this landmark profession of faith. And yet it is that they can also struggle with this faith in their hearts. Remember that these very disciples have just failed to cast out a demon out of a boy, something that Jesus had given them power to do so. They couldn't do it. Uh, Jesus laments their unbelief. He calls them, they're a faithless and twisted generation. And so profession of faith with lips, yes, but not quite a true and strong possession of it where it really counts. Remember that Jesus also very clearly teaches his followers, even using the phrase in our last passage, let these words sink into your ears to try and get these men to focus on his coming sufferings. And the disciples respond to that message by arguing amongst each other as to which one of them is the greatest. Can you imagine the density that it takes to listen to the Son of God, God himself, speaking of his own glory in his coming sufferings for our sin and to somehow be more consumed with your own individual glory, enough to fight other people for it, while Jesus is on his way to a cross. Again, that faith in Christ hasn't gotten a stronghold of their hearts, even though it has come out of their lips. They are still more hungry for their own glory than God's. Jesus responds to them, the one who is least among you all is the one who is great. He redefines everything for us. This is a context for our passage this morning. This phenomenon of human pride, which serves as the setting for Jesus' journey into Jerusalem to the cross. 
We have a group of his followers who are so close to Jesus in one sense and yet so far away from him at the same time in another because they are still so full of themselves. And it is in our text this morning that Luke continues to unfold what this self-centered pride can look like, not only at the individual level, but as a group as well. Now, again, I don't think the purpose is such that we can point the finger and think, I will never, ever be like any one of these guys. But so that what is obvious in them might bring out what can be so less obvious in each of us. The Word of God does that for us sometimes to help us see our reflection in these very followers of Jesus Christ so that we might understand more of our own human hearts and therefore appreciate the person and work of Jesus all the more to really believe what he says. We read in verse 49, John answered, Master, we saw someone casting out demons in your name, and we tried to stop him because he does not follow with us. But Jesus said to him, do not stop him, for the one who is not against you is for you. You know, sometimes we can be passionate for the wrong things, even under the guise of ministry. And we see in these verses a, a group pride, a tribalism, a clique supremacy, manifesting itself in competition against other people. That if the disciples could be rivals with each other in arguing about which one of them is greatest individually, they can also team up together here to exhibit that same kind of pride and self-importance by rating our group as more supreme than any other group. Now, I don't know why John brings this occasion up in the context of Jesus' teaching on true greatness. Perhaps it is with greatness being defined with all this talk about being the least, John still wants to draw at least some distinction. Yeah, 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 Jesus, uh, we're supposed to be humble and serve. I get that. But there should be something about being a part of the original 12, right? I mean, we've been here since day one. We've listened to you and seen more things than any other people have seen or witnessed. There must be something that sets us apart as being more important, perhaps more great than other people, right? And John is describing the scene uh, looking for some kind of affirmation because someone outside of their group had been casting out demons in the name of Jesus. The disciples see that, and they try to stop that. But they're unsuccessful in doing so, and this exorcist is successful in helping out another person. Isn't it interesting, the timing of these verses? Because the disciples themselves had just failed an exorcism of their own in verse 40 because of a lack of faith in their hearts. And now they're trying to prevent another person from being successful in the very area they themselves failed. It's as if, if we can't do it, then no one else can. If we don't succeed, neither do we want anyone else to succeed either, and especially an outsider. And this is John's own confession in verse 49. We try to stop him because he does not follow with us. Not because he was saying something untrue about Jesus. Not because he was doing the exorcism the wrong way. Not because he's distorting the main message or because his heart is in the wrong place, in error or falsehood. No, we try to stop him because he does not follow with us. Pride makes it so that we cannot celebrate what God is doing outside of our own little cliques. Because we so often do not want to acknowledge good if it has nothing to do with us. Can you imagine a basketball player sulking on the bench with other friends on the bench when one of their teammates hits the game winner? We won. Why are you so sad? Because I wasn't the one who hit that shot. 
because none of my friends were the ones who hit that shot. And to me, it's not a true win unless me and my peoples are the main reason for it. And these are the worst kind of teammates. They only see the me and team. These disciples seem to only want the kingdom of God to defeat the power of the satanic if they themselves are the main reason for that victory. Because rather than the glory of God, we want the glory of me and of us and the majesty of our own group. And if we find ourselves unable to celebrate what God is doing apart from us, I think we have to be honest that we may have a yearning desire for our own recognition more than Christ. That we want the monopoly on Jesus to use his name and his might for our own fame. We want to transfer his glory to our account. And so we regulate, we gatekeep. We are the ones at his right and left hand. And no one does any true ministry outside of our purview. This is the attitude of self-centeredness that we are seeing here, even within the context of ministry. And it distorts our perceptions. I mean, think about it. Think about this instance. The work of the devil is being destroyed. Satan's influence defeated. A demon is expelled. A person is freed from their deep oppression, all in the name of Jesus, that the one who needs help the most is being helped. And this power is evidence of and attributed to the lordship of Jesus Christ. We don't even know the other guy's name. We just know that it was done in the name Jesus, but these disciples want it all to stop because, again, he is not part of us. Group pride, clique supremacy, competition amongst other peoples, other churches, other ministries is not a God, brothers and sisters. And we find ourselves to be insecure or overly suspicious or envious of what God is doing in other people's lives and churches, this may be a strong sign that our own pride has gotten the best of us, that party spirit has gotten the best of us. There is a much larger team that is doing the work of Jesus Christ than what fits into the people we know. And there are many followers of Jesus who are accomplishing his work, and we must celebrate this fact, which is why Jesus declares ever so clearly in this context, do not stop him, for the one who is not against you is for you. We shouldn't be in the business of making enemies out of our friends and our partners. You know, these disciples after the cross are going to find themselves in very trying situations. Most of them are going to be persecuted, jailed, even martyred. They need to understand that God is going to provide friends and partners for them who do not have their source in them. And so we must be careful that we do not let our own self-centeredness, vanity, spiritual pride, which is just normal pride with religious makeup, we must not let that prevent us from seeing the greater work that God is doing in the world. Now, Jesus' words here by clarification, do not mean that anyone using the name Jesus in any capacity we must therefore celebrate. This is not a call to undiscerning ecumenicalism. Undiscerning ecumenicalism meaning we, that we put aside all of our differences, no matter how major, and only focus on what we have in common and team up in the name of Jesus. That means teaming up with the Mormons because they use the name Jesus even though they cling to a false gospel or the Jehovah's Witnesses because they use the name Jesus, although they deny his distinct deity. Jesus' words here do not mean that we hold hands with the Joel Osteens of the world who preach a very, frankly, demonic gospel of health, wealth, and prosperity and never proclaim <clears throat> the cross or sin or repentance. 
Jesus' words here do not mean that we partner with and celebrate those who deny the Bible and LGBTQ issues or try to bury in embarrassment God's design and gender or roles in marriage, the home and the church, or deny the sanctity of life in support of abortion and whatnot. Jesus is not here promoting doctrinal indifference. Almost every letter in the New Testament points out doctrinal error as being utterly fatal to a true understanding of the gospel. But so often it is that we can use doctrinal distinctiveness and fidelity to the Bible as a way to stroke our own egos and to put ourselves into the judgment seat and to become elitist and shake our heads at anyone else who does not do things in our way and therefore discount any good that comes out of rival ministries as second class because they don't do it like we do it. The main issue in these verses is not about doctrinal error. The main issue in these verses is the disciple saying he is not of us, not that he is not of Christ. And we can do the same thing today. This one's not of us, even though though they are found in him. We must be careful that in the name of Jesus, we are not just using him in his word to catapult ourselves into glory over other people that we think are below us. This is especially true in churches like ours, where we make it a point to try our best to be faithful to the text because we can be again so tempted to use the glory of Jesus and his truth as a tool and a mechanism to lift ourselves higher as if we somehow have the monopoly on him. If we more and more make ourselves to be the ones who have this monopoly on Jesus, that we are the only ones who know how to do true ministry to the point where being with us is almost more important than being with Christ, then we have let our pride and our glory mongering overshadow the glory of God who is at work in a thousand places that have nothing to do with us. And so tribalism, group pride, clique supremacy is something that we each and we all must avoid. Verse 51, we see yet another and more extreme expression of this pride. When the days drew near for him to be taken up, he set his face to go to Jerusalem. And he sent messengers ahead of him who went and entered a village of the Samaritans to make preparations for him. But the people did not receive him because his face was set toward Jerusalem. And when his disciples, James and John, saw it, they said, Lord, do you want us to tell fire to come down from heaven and consume them? But he turned and rebuked them, and they went on to another village. We see here the same pride in the heart of Jesus' followers uh, being expressed in an actual desire for violence against those who reject Jesus which is utterly anti the heart of Jesus Christ, who is lovingly making his way toward the cross in the face of rejection. We have here a zeal that is without knowledge and a passion that is without a cross. Now, it's important to note the cultural context of these verses. The Samaritans were not full-blooded Israelites and were not, therefore, viewed as true Jewish people, true godly people, because they had a history of intermarrying with those who did not recognize Yahweh. The Samaritans are a mixed breed. Likewise, the Samaritans did not like the Jewish people either who viewed them in such a negative light. And so there's quite a bit of tension between these two cultures in neighboring regions. They did everything separately. 
And over the centuries, the Samaritans actually had their own place of worship to God since they were shunned from Jerusalem, and the Jewish people had theirs, and they both looked at each other with great disapproval. This is generations of hatred, centuries of animosity, and so Jesus, on his way to Jerusalem, wants to make a pit stop in a Samaritan village to rest and recharge and whatnot before they kept on their journey to Jerusalem. But the Samaritans hearing this, that this Jesus, whom we've heard of, he's going to Jerusalem, well, then he's obviously playing for the wrong team. We're not going to welcome him into our town with open arms. But why it is that the Samaritans of this village reject Jesus is not the central feature of these verses. What is featured in these verses is Jesus' own disciples and how they respond to rejection. James and John asked Jesus, Lord, do you want us to tell fire to come down from heaven and consume them? James and John want these Samaritans to pay for their rejection of the Messiah with their lives and to feel the wrath of God against their sin. They want the Samaritans to experience instantaneous judgment because of their refusal to receive Jesus into their midst. But here's the thing. James and John never asked Jesus to call fire down from heaven when the Jewish people rejected him. They didn't request instant judgment when the religious leadership of Israel weren't on the same page with Jesus. They only do that here because they are again using Jesus to accomplish something they already desire within their hearts apart from Jesus. They want to paint their national pride with a spiritual brush. They want to make their discipleship ultimately about defeating their enemies with the power of Christ. And now that we have them, our enemies, they're toast. But in doing so, they have no idea about the very heart of our Savior, who has come to save his people from their sins by his own death upon the cross. Jesus has come to die himself and not to put anyone else to death. And sadly, the disciples, their definition of discipleship doesn't even have a cross in the equation at this point. Now, this is a very uh, scary text, brothers and sisters, of what people can do in the name of religion. This is in the same vein as Jonah, who only wanted some people to receive the compassion of God and not others. How his own personal prejudices had shrunk God down into the Savior of only his people and not the entire world of humanity which had fallen away from God and desperately needs a way back to him. Jonah preferred that Nineveh perish because he hated the Ninevites. And we're seeing the same kind of heart right in these verses with the Samaritan rejection as the trigger. But it is interesting that James and John actually do get quite a few things right. They call Jesus Lord. They do recognize this about Jesus. They submit to his will. They don't want to take action outside of his will. They bow their desires to his own authority. They don't just try and bring judgment on the Samaritans. They ask Jesus for permission because they recognize his place and they recognize their place. They also recognize his power. The same disciples who can't cast out a single demon now all of a sudden have this faith that fire can literally rain down from the skies if they command it to. I mean, this is powerful faith. They haven't seen this done before. This isn't a miracle that Jesus accomplishes in his time on earth. 
There have only been a few instances of this kind of judgment in the entire Old Testament. But James and John, in their fervor, they believe that this is an occasion by which God could bring down a miraculous, cosmic display of wrath unheard of for centuries, but can be revealed right now at our command. And this is spectacular faith. And so the disciples recognize his power, his authority, his place. They have this amazing belief. They are also filled with zeal for Jesus. They respect his honor. They're right in that they are upset when people reject Jesus. And I think we're living in a church era where we are often more afraid uh, to offend the unbelieving world than we are afraid to offend the eternal God. And then we tiptoe around certain issues and come up with all kinds of less offensive synonyms for the word sin and try to water down the concept of it, seem embarrassed about the coming judgment, hesitant to call people to repentance, reticent to tell people they're in trouble in living the wrong way, so much so that when people pretty much blaspheme the name of Jesus and belittle his words, we don't even blink an eye. But if an unbeliever were somehow uncomfortable at church, well, that's the cardinal sin. And we better change everything up because we wouldn't want to offend them now, would we? We'd rather offend our God. At least James and John have a fiery zeal for the honor of Jesus. That after all the demonstrative miracles that have proven his identity as a Christ, the Son of God, they know a high-handed rejection of him should elicit in his people zeal for his name. That that sin is a big deal. That rejection of Jesus is a massive deal. And that deserves a necessary judgment. They get that part right. That they hate the rejection of the Son of God that they can't stand it when people dishonor his name, so much so that it burns within their bosom, so to speak. And especially it is here when it is against the Samaritans do they respond with rejection and rage. They get several points right, but this is all for nothing because they miss entirely the point of Jesus' first coming. They miss entirely Jesus' mission, because Jesus deals with rejection in altogether a different way. From the moment Jesus is born, he has already been rejected. King Herod sought to kill him, massacred a city's population of baby boys to do so. Necessary collateral damage, because I hate Jesus that much. Jesus is born, but he's laid in a manger because of rejection. There had been no other place to lay him, for people would not make room for him. When Jesus begins his ministry, he's rejected when he preaches the gospel. Jesus is rejected by the top religious people from the very nation with the richest spiritual heritage that the ones who should have welcomed him with open arms are the very ones who want to execute him upon a cross. Jesus' words are rejection, even by the disciples who clung to him most, that self-denial, carrying a cross, and following him are not what they want to be about. Jesus is rejected in Samaria. He's rejected in the Gadarenes. He will be rejected in Jerusalem, with will be the location of a scourging, torture, mocking, and crucifixion. From the cradle to the grave, Jesus' entire life has been one of massive rejection. And yet it is that knowing these things very clearly, the text tells us here in verse 51 that Jesus still sets his face to go to Jerusalem. That the way Jesus responds to rejection, the way he treats the very people who deny him, 
is with this firm resolve to head to the place where he will suffer and die and bear the sins of the many. I mean, if we think more about it, we have the Son of God here, truly man, in his 30s, divine power at his fingertips. He can call fire down from heaven. He can walk on water. He can make fish jump into his lap. Who can multiply matter? I can. Who can heal anything? I can. I can raise the dead. And I'm sure he struggled with this desire to get married, have kids, find a home, avoid the cross, dodge suffering. The very fact that Jesus sets his face towards Jerusalem implies that he had to fight to do it. He had to endure the cross and despise its shame, Hebrews 12, 2. He had to set his face like Flint, Isaiah 50, verse 70. He had to have resolve to go to the cross. And if at any point he was unresolved, the cross of our salvation would have never occurred. But what is the reason for the strong determination? The Bible tells us that the reason is love. Love for us with an everlasting love, brothers and sisters, for the very ones like James and John who are still slow, still so slow to even understand his own heart. He loves his followers whom he recognizes as, oh, faithless and twisted generation, how long am I to be with you and bear with you? Jesus loves those who do not necessarily love him back. Jesus faces rejection and responds to that rejection with even a greater determination to walk Calvary's road and hang upon the cross for the sins of those who do not deserve him but deserve to perish instead. You know, brothers and sisters, it's not like we're an easy people to love. How many times in ministry do you just want to quit? How many times in marriage do you just want to self-protect, self-deny, lash out, not die to self? How many times in parenting do you just want to throw your hands up, maybe even wash your hands of everything? In those moments where we come to an end of our love, we realize just how far surpassing the love of Jesus Christ is for his people. He has not come in his first coming to judge, but he has come to save and to be lifted up into glory by way of the cross. Jesus, he's not shocked at the sinfulness of his followers here. It's not as if he signed a contract to save a people. And then when he was neck deep into the people, had second thoughts once he spent more time with these people. Jesus went in, both eyes wide open, which means that your worst moments, brothers and sisters, even the ones that can sometimes shock you, our worst thoughts, our deepest skeletons in our closet, Jesus already knew about them from eternity past. And Jesus still set his face to go to Jerusalem for you. Now, this is what Jerusalem means to him. The cross, not some cultural place of debate where Jewish people and Samaritans can have a fight over territory. Jerusalem is a place where he will bear his cross because it is this cross which demonstrates his heart for us. That knowing the very worst about each and every single one of us, he loves us still to the point of self-sacrifice in the most difficult way. This is how Jesus responds to humanity's rejection of him. And then we come back to James and John where this kind of cross is the furthest thing from their minds, where the self-denying love is the most foreign thing to their ambitions. We're going to Jerusalem too, not to suffer, but to reign. 
And on the way, we're going to smoke these enemies if they continue to reject us. You want some more of this? We'll come bring fire down from the sky. Nothing's going to stop us now. If need be, we'll kill you all. And what the disciples are demonstrating in these verses is what so often happens within our own hearts that we miss the point of discipleship entirely. We're not at war with our enemies. We're in a fight to save them. We're not trying to triumph in some earthly kingdom today. We are carrying a cross and looking for his kingdom to come and his will to be done on earth as it is in heaven. The point of discipleship is to bear the same kind of cross that Jesus took upon himself in love for the people who are around us. That's what discipleship is. Listen to John Piper. I think he hits the nail on the head. What does this mean? It means, first of all, that a mistaken view of Jesus' journey to Jerusalem can lead to a mistaken view of discipleship. Here's a question put to every believer by this text. Does discipleship mean deploying God's missiles against the enemy in righteous indignation? Or does discipleship mean following him on the Calvary road, which leads to suffering and death? The answer of the whole New Testament is this. The surprise about Jesus, the Messiah, is that he came to live a life of sacrificial dying service before he comes a second time to reign in glory. And the surprise about discipleship is that it demands a life of sacrificial dying service before we can reign with Christ in glory. I wonder what it is that you think a life of following Jesus is supposed to be like. If you avoid suffering, if you avoid the cross like the plague, or you embrace it to glorify your Savior. Pastor told me this week we're never more like Christ than when we suffer for him. And I wonder what you think a gospel-centered marriage is supposed to be like, to demand our rights or to lovingly give them up. I wonder what it is that you want your children to grow up to be, cross-avoiders, big-timers in the world, or cross-bearers. Greatness as defined by society or greatness as defined by Jesus, that the least among you all is the one who is great. I wonder how it is that you respond to those who reject us or disagree with our view of Jesus and our desires for this world. I think we see this love of Christ in this text, but we see it even more in John's own life as well and not letting a man like John remain like he is. In the book of Acts, John and Peter take the gospel. This is after the cross, after the resurrection, after the ascension. Peter and, and John, they are on this missionary trip. And where do they go? To many villages of the Samaritans in Acts 8, verse 25. This is the crazy transformation that the one who wanted to call fire down from heaven now wants to proclaim the son of love as coming down from heaven for even the ones I used to be prejudiced against. I mean, wouldn't it be crazy if John came to this very same village? Maybe it's not that crazy, since he had truly become not just a confessor of Jesus, but a believer in his heart of Jesus. You know, if you're new here, maybe don't come to church that often. Now, what this text shows to us is, is that the disciples of Jesus are not the heroes of the story. The Abrahams, the Davids, the, the Peters, the Pauls, Every single one of them have their flaws. 
Everyone struggles with pride. That's right here in the text. And you might see the same thing in the church today. You might see the same fighting amongst Christians, maybe fighting about uh, their view on COVID, prejudice against this or that, a tribalism that refuses to accept that the other side might actually be of the Lord. You might see people who are at each other's throats and envy, fighting over politics, and may be tempted to think that this somehow proves Christianity is therefore blatantly false. But the same is true today as it was then, where Luke is showing to us that none of Jesus' followers are the heroes. And likewise, none of us are without sin. We're each prone and bent to this kind of pride individually and as a group, and God should have quit on every single one of us a long, long time ago. But despite our many failings, Jesus comes to us and takes us by the hand, as it were, and sets his face towards Jerusalem to die upon a cross for our sin, to die as sin itself in our place, because Jesus is the only way to salvation. He is the only hero in this creation. We cannot save ourselves. Jesus must rescue us, and that is how he chooses to die. But he doesn't stay dead. No, he rises on the third day. He defeats the power of sin, breaks pride, and kills death so that his followers might have a new life, so that his followers might be like him. This is why we love the glory of the cross, brothers and sisters, and share in his fellowship of his sufferings, and we can strangely have a deep joy in even carrying our own cross and find our deepest happiness in being reconciled to this God and trying to reconcile others to this God as well. Would you please join me in prayer? Father, we thank you for your word, and it's a text that really shows, uh, pulls back the curtain, what can exist within our own hearts. And we thank you, God, that you know everything about us. And yet, for God so loved the world that you gave your only son, that whoever believes in him should not perish but have life everlasting. We thank you, God, for the gospel. As we come to communion, Lord, save all this morning, we thank you, Lord, that Jesus' first coming in this incarnation was not to call fire down from heaven to consume us, although we deserved it. But you sent him, you sent him to be consumed by your fire in our place. We thank you for this love and grace, and would this be the theme of the rest of our lives to your glory. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.